A lot of the certifications that you're required to make are found directly in your contract, but some are not. Cybersecurity requirements, particularly with regard to the submission of an invoice, may not be expressly included in your contract, or they may be expressly included in your contract, but they're not required for express certification in your invoicing. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the sixth and final episode of our series on risk prevention strategies. In this episode, Matt Feinberg and Camilla Hundley, attorneys in Polero Maza's False Claims Act Group, sit down to discuss protocols companies should follow to avoid or mitigate False Claims Act risk. With over $2.2 billion in recoveries for the Department of Justice in settlements and judgments from civil cases involving fraud and the FCA in 2020, it remains an effective and important enforcement tool for DOJ. So, government contractors and companies that do business with government contractors should be wary of being the target of potential enforcement action in 2021 and beyond. Matt and Camilla's conversation covers the latest trends in FCA enforcement for government contractors, the importance of an FCA compliance plan for government contractors, and how to handle whistleblower complaints before they become FCA cases. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Welcome to the final installment of our Risk Prevention Strategy Series. Today's topic is FCA Risk Prevention for Government Contractors. Uh, my name is Matt Feinberg. I'm a partner in the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Group of Blair Mazza. I'm joined today by Camilla Hundley, and we're going to talk to you a little bit about government contractor-specific risks that could lead to a False Claims Act violation. We'll talk a little bit about the latest trends in FCA investigation and prosecution by the federal government. And we'll hopefully answer some of your questions if you have any and give you some information to go home with. Um, so without further ado, I think we'll get started. First, as I mentioned, my name is Matt Feinberg. I'm the chair of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group at Polera Mazza. Um, my practice involves a considerable amount of representing government contractors and False Claims Act uh, audits and investigations and ultimately litigation from the initial phone call from the Department of Justice through the subpoena process or civil investigative demand process uh, through litigation and trial. So I hopefully will be able to share with you some the occasional war story. Um, I know how everyone loves those um, throughout to, uh, our topics today. And as I mentioned, I'm joined today by my colleague, Camilla Hundley, and I'll give her a chance to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Camilla Hundley. I'm an associate in the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Group. Um, I'm also a member of the False Claims Practice Group, so I'm usually right alongside Matt working through the steps that clients face when they're faced with a False Claims Act issue. Um, and I look forward to learning more about it with you, hearing from Matt, and explaining and answering your questions as well. Great. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, Polera Mazza is a business law firm, um, typically serving as a strategic partner to government contractors and private sector commercial businesses from all across the United States and occasionally internationally. We've put up a slide here that shows you a small segment of the type of work we do. Um, if you have any legal issues, particularly legal issues affecting government contractors, um, feel free to reach out at any time. Before we get started on the content of the webinar, I do want to give you the, the, the disclaimer. This webinar is not intended as legal advice. Um, we are not creating an attorney-client relationship through the provision of this webinar. And any questions that you ask us directly and that we may answer on the air is not intended to provide specific legal advice for your situation. Your specific legal situation, in fact, might be very different from the things that we talk about, or there may be other factors that that are uh, that come into play that may affect our, our, our advice. If you have questions about a specific um, event or issue affecting your company or you as a person, 
please reach out to us separately. We'd be happy to talk you through and we can um, talk about the specific solution that might solve your problem there. But again, we're not providing specific legal advice for you or creating an attorney-client relationship. So let's get started. What is the False Claims Act? Camilla? Yeah, so starting off with some background, the False Claims Act is a statute that impacts all government contractors as well as commercial businesses that do business with government contractors. Um, so if you're involved at all in the government contracting world, it's really important that you're aware of how your business practices could expose you to the violation of this statute. Um, it actually dates back to the Civil War. It was passed by Congress in response to people selling bad uniforms, decrepit horses, faulty gunpowder to the Union Army. Um, and it continues to this day to serve as the government's primary means of collecting money obtained through misrepresentation and also to retrieve money improperly withheld from the government through false submissions. Um, there's several elements that you have that must be proven to assert a violation of the False Claims Act. So first, there needs to be a claim, which is a request for money or payment from the government. Most often, that's going to look like an invoice, um, but there, it can come appear in ways that you might not expect, and Matt's going to walk through those more particularly during this presentation. And the second requirement is that it must be false. So false can mean improper, incorrect, unlawful, or unjustified, um, any way that's supported by a misrepresentation that's untrue and does not warrant the request for payment. But it's important to keep in mind that not all incorrect claims are violations. The False Claims Act is also going to require that that false claim be submitted knowingly or recklessly, which is to say there needs to be some level of intent and a mere mistake or accident is not going to result in liability under the False Claims Act. Um, this presentation is focusing on the Civil False Claims Act violations, but it is important to know that there are civil as well as criminal mechanisms to enforce the False Claims Act that you should be aware of. So a false claims matter can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Um, two primary distinctions is that they can be initiated by the government or by private citizens. Um, government initiated matters typically arise out of internal audits or investigations. Those can be by the Office of the Inspector General or Department of Justice, but they can also be filed by private litigants. Um, these are called key TAM matters, and you might be more familiar with them as whistleblower lawsuits. In that instance, the private litigant will file a suit under seal to allow the government to investigate and make a decision to join the claim. Um, but even if the government decides that it's not worth the government's time to pursue it, the QTAM relator can continue to, to file the suit and pursue it against the company that they believe has made a false claim. Um, an important thing to know about these QTAM lawsuits is that if the QTAM plaintiff is successful, he or she will actually share in a percentage of the award to the government. So this creates an incentive for whistleblowers and even competitors to file these types of actions. And that's why we'll talk about it a little bit later. It's very important to keep any type of internal complaint that you receive from an employee, um, a consultant, another contractor about a possible False Claims Act violation you want to pay serious attention to because it could eventually become one of these key TAM lawsuits. Okay, so there are a number of different types of False Claims Act violations, particularly those that can affect government contractors. The first is a bit of an obvious answer. It's an actual express false claim to the government. Your invoice was incorrect, for instance. Um, let's say that you are on a contract that bills, um, it, it might be a time and materials or labor hours contract. You submitted an invoice for a thousand labor hours worked during a certain period of time, but you know that your employees only worked 600 hours. That would be a false claim because it was um, you submitted a request to the government directly for the payment of a thousand hours when 400 of those hours were not worked. The second and and often quite common for small businesses in particular is the false record or false statement violation. That usually relates to a, a request for payment from the government that is otherwise perfectly acceptable. Um, for instance, an invoice that requests the six payment for the 600 hours labor hours that were worked, but it is accompanied by a false statement or a false record which misleads the government into paying that um, that invoice. For instance, many times you will have to submit a certification of your invoicing that all subcontractors have been paid or that you're in compliance with all applicable laws. 
those may be express certifications usually required by the invoicing provisions of your contract, or they could be implied certifications, which is a bit like my second example, that you are implied to comply with the government, with the law um, in regards to your government contract at all times. Um, so you might have that express certification where you're actually signing a document um, that certifies that the information is correct, or you might have an implied certification where the simple submission of an invoice by itself is considered a certification that you're in compliance with the law or similar types of issues. There's also a reverse false claim, and here's where things get a little bit confusing. In this instance, there doesn't need to be an original invoice submitted to the government or even a request from a contractor for payment. What we're talking about on a reverse false claim is the contractor has possession of money or property that, the gov that belongs to the government and then does not return it when the government requests it. Sometimes this can happen out of an overpayment of an invoice. For whatever reason, there may be a clerical error in the government that pays your invoice and adds a zero to the end of it. And suddenly you've received a payment of $335,000 instead of $35,000 or something along those lines. The retention of that money um, would potentially create a reverse false claim. This also um, implicates PPP loan forgiveness under the CARES Act. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, and there's also conspiracy to violate the False Claims Act. Um, we'll address each of these in turn, but the conspiracy is, is not exactly what we're, but the word that it, it connotes is much more sinister than it actually is. What this means is that ultimately False Claims Act liability can pass up the contracting chain. Um, and if you are aware of a contracting violation and don't report it, that could implicate you in the underlying wrongdoing. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Um, so how do these different types of FCA violations impact government contractors? Um, first, like I mentioned, is the false claim that ultimately is a presentment of a false claim for payment to the government. Um, it's not just the submission of an incorrect invoice. It could include um, an incorrect description of goods or services. If you are providing uh, a certain t uh, quality of IT pro uh, program or you're required to provide, say, a Cisco um, software program to the government and you get a generic program that's not Cisco, um, that would be a False Claims Act violation if you submit an invoice that ultimately describes the goods or services provided incorrectly. Um, my example before was submitting an invoice for more labor hours than were actually worked. This would be ultimately submitting for services never provided. Um, you could be billing at the wrong pay rate. For instance, you may have stated in your proposal, and it was the basis for your contract, becomes the basis for your contract, that you're going to bill a 4% margin or fee on top of um, the costs for your performance. But ultimately, through a, you know, a clerical error or an, in, um, an intentional error, you end up billing the government a 5% fee. Um, it would be a False Claims Act violation to submit that invoice. Um, you can also bill under the wrong contract line item number or a task order. Let's say that you have some surge work that needs to be performed under um, one certain CLIN number in your contract, but that means you're going to run out of billing um, or out of bandwidth on that, on that line item by the end of the contract. So you need to move some work to another CLIN in order to stay under budget. You can't do that without the government's approval and without a modification of the contract. So you need to follow the contract requirements and the budget closely and make sure that you're not billing incorrectly for work actually performed but over budget or um, not performed at all. So that second example was the false record or false statement. And like I said before, this is a false statement made in conjunction with an invoice or other request for payment. Um, in many respects, it's very similar to the false claim violation. It could include an incorrect description or goods of goods or services, um, or it could be a representation of services never provided. A lot of the certifications that you're required to make are found directly in your contract, but some are not. Cybersecurity requirements, particularly with regard to the submission of an invoice, may not be expressly included in your contract. 
or they may be expressly included in your contract, but they're not required for express certification in your invoicing. An example of this would be uh, a case from a couple of years ago, which was the first ever cybersecurity false claims act case uh, that resulted in a settlement. There are both express and implied certifications that were required um, for that contract. Um, in particular, the government needed to know, one, that the contractor was compliant with the contractor's cybersecurity requirements, but also the contractor would not have obtained the work from the contractor if the contractor's work would not allow the government to be in compliance with its cybersecurity requirements. And because the contractor's work was compliant with neither its obligations, nor would it allow the government to be compliant with its obligations, there was a False Claims Act violation. Now, ultimately, that case settled. So we don't know whether a court or a jury would have ultimately ruled in the contractor's favor or the government's favor, but it did result in an $8 million settlement um, based on uh, faulty certifications in invoicing related to cybersecurity. One subset of um, the False Claims Act is the theory of fraudulent inducement. And this relates to the fact that um, all claims for payment submitted to the government under a specific contract are considered false, where the contract itself was obtained through a false statement or fraudulent conduct. This typically comes up around in a, a size or status certification. For instance, if it's a small business set-aside contract or a um, SBA program set-aside contract, such as an SCVOSB contract, Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Small Business, you can run afoul of the False Claims Act by not being appropriately certified um, at the time your certification is required. And that varies a little bit based on a single award contract or a multi-award contract or an IDIQ. Um, it also depends on whether it's a schedule contract. I'm going to talk about all of those things in a, a little bit. Um, but ultimately, in order for you to avoid liability under the False Claims Act, you want to make sure that you are actually qualified for the contracts you're bidding on at the time you're bidding. Um, if you are close to your um, uh, revenues number for your for a specific NAICS code, you want to double and triple check those numbers in advance to make sure you are actually qualified uh, for that contract based on the rules that are applicable um, to a given contract. The other time this can happen is if a small business is merely acting as a pass-through for a large business. This often in, uh, involves limitations on subcontracting issues. Again, we'll talk about those in a few minutes. Um, or the fact that uh, a small business um, basically does no work, um, but wins the contract, and then the large business does all of the work and merely pays a fee of some sort to the small business when it was a small business set aside or an SBA set aside contract. So with regard to false certifications, which is a part of the false statement uh, liability, we are talking about express false certifications and implied false certifications. An express, express false certification is where a contractor is required to certify certain aspects of performance or conditions at the time of submission of a request for payment. This typically involves, and you'll see this on most of your invoices, that payment of all subcontractors in full has occurred or will occur within a certain period of time. Um, this could also occur where a contracting officer requires an affirmative certification of size or status at the time of bidding or at the time of award of a contract. Uh, my example before was cybersecurity requirements. Um, currently, CMMC, which many of you probably know about, is not typically a requirement in a contract, but it will be soon. And so you will be certifying expressly in most cases that you are in compliance with CMMC um, if your contract relates to, um, has a cybersecurity component. Um, you're also certifying that the work that's billed was actually performed, but in many occasions, the express, the express certifications you have to make depend on the specific language of your contract and the form invoice that the government might send to you. With regard to the PPP loan program, um, you also had to make certain, for those of you who received a loan, you had to make certain express certifications in order to obtain the loan. Those were mandatory. Um, for instance, on the original loan application, you had to certify that um, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, 
the success of your business was in doubt or uh, was unable to be determined. And due to the risk and concern you had, you were eligible for to receive the loan. You also have to make certain certifications expressly when seeking forgiveness, specifically that you made payments in the, or used the money received um, in order to meet the goals of the PPP program and didn't use them, for instance, to buy a house in Florida. Um, when you make those certifications, you are making a, an express statement to the government and the government, if that statement is false, can come after you for False Claims Act liability um, and would be, uh, and there can be significant penalties um, for any violation there. When we talk about an implied false certification, we're talking about um, a false claim where the certification is not expressly required in the contract, but where by its very nature, it is an obligation that a contractor would have to meet. Um, the most common of those is your implied certification that the performance of your contract is in accordance with applicable laws and regulations. Um, in construction, that might include compliance with appropriate building codes or and obtaining um, subcontractors with appropriate licenses, getting permits for the work that's done. Um, my cybersecurity example, again, an implied certification is that the work you're doing is in compliance with the government's obligations uh, cybersecurity obligations. And um, another important implied certification is that you have a duty as a government contractor to not knowingly withhold information from the government that is material to the government's decision to pay. Turning to a reverse false claim, as I mentioned before, this is what the opposite of a false statement or, or um, false claim uh, false Claims Act matter violation. This is where the government has paid out money or a contractor is in possession of money or property that is owned by the government and fails to return it. So one of the frequent ways this has happened lately is that there is a failure to return an overpayment. Like the government has made a mistake. Sometimes it pays its own employees um, more than it's supposed to or it fails to take someone off payroll after they've resigned um, fast enough, they get another paycheck. They're required to return that payment immediately. If they don't do it, that's a False Claims Act violation. Same thing can happen to a government contractor. Um, due to a clerical error, the government could pay an invoice twice. If you hold on to that money um, and don't return it upon demand from the government, then you may have violated the False Claims Act. Um, there could be a false statement on a loan application um, to the SBA, for instance. If you are seeking a 7A loan from the SBA and you have uh, obtained the um, payment of the loan um, through false statements, then the fact that you have not returned that money to the government um, could result in a reverse False Claims Act violation. Let me skip the prime contractor subcontractor relationship for a moment and give you a specific example of the surety prime contractor relationship. This is one of the most heavily contested areas of false claim liability in the last few years. And that's because the Department of Justice has specifically gone after surety companies that bond out construction projects for um, allowing the underlying contractor, prime contractor, to violate the terms of the contract or to violate the FCA, and they've done nothing about it. And this theory is that let's say the prime contractor received an SDVOSB set aside construction contract, but the surety through its bonding out of the contract knows that ultimately the, the company, the prime contractor is not a qualified SDVOSB. Um, the government has recently gone after sureties for bonding out the project, even though the prime contractor was not a qualified SDVOSB, because ultimately, if that's a breach, the SDVOSB not being a, a proper recipient of the contract, or I should say the contractor not being a proper SDVOSB, means that the surety should have been paying out for the breach of the contract from the very beginning. And so all of the checks that went from the government or, or wires that went from the government to the prime contractor should have been reimbursed to the government by the surety. 
This is a very tricky area of False Claims Act law. I could spend an entire webinar talking about it. I won't because it can be a little boring for those of you not in the construction industry. Um, but if you have any questions about bonding on um, prime contracts for construction and whether there's a False Claims Act violation, uh, please reach out to me separately. Um, prime contractor, subcontractor relationship, jumping back up. Um, when you're a prime contractor, you often receive your invoices from a subcontractor uh, or receive invoices from the subcontractor. And those may not be 100% accurate 100% of the time, but you wouldn't necessarily know. If you later find out that your subcontractor overbilled, um, whether by mistake or on purpose, then it is possible that you will create a False Claims Act violation if you don't return the overpayment uh, of the um, of that subcontract to the government. And then finally, PPP loan forgiveness. This is a sort of a, a, a sexy new um, argument that the government is making with regard to PPP loans. In order to obtain forgiveness, you had to make both express and implied certifications. And if you those certifications are incorrect, then you are not entitled to forgiveness and you owe the repayment to the government. That would be a reverse false claims act because the government is as a baseline entitled to repayment of the PPP loan. There's conspiracy to violate the false claims act. Ultimately, um, this is an easy one for the government and for um, Ketam relators to tack on to a false claims act case. It requires an agreement to commit an unlawful act by unlawful means. The conspirator willfully joined before, during, before or during the unlawful act, and at least one party committed an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Typically, this pops up in four um, circumstances. One, the prime contractor subcontractor relationship. I talked about this a little earlier. False Claims Act violations can travel up the chain. Therefore, if a subcontractor committed a False Claims Act violation by, for instance, submitting an invoice to the prime contractor to be submitted to the government for work not performed, then the prime contractor and the subcontractor may ultimately be liable for the subcontractor's False Claims Act violation because the prime contractor was submitting the false claim in its own name. Um, the surety and the prime contractor may be uh, brought into a False Claims Act uh, lawsuit by conspiracy for the reasons I just described. The surety has a duty to pay out for a breach of a construction contract, but if it doesn't do so, um, then it could theoretically be in conspiracy in a conspiracy with the prime contractor. Um, very recently, some investor and private equity companies um, that invest in government contractors have been tagged into False Claims Act violations because ultimately the money provided by the investor or the private equity firm have funded the False Claims Act violation or have funded the, the breach of the contract. And the last version would be a company or officer relationship. And if you're hearing that background noise, I apologize. Um, it's outside my window. Um, the company itself is submitting an invoice and a request for payment in the name of the contractor. Uh, that's a pretty standard, easy False Claims Act claim to make. But sometimes there is an officer who has signed the certification and often the same officers repeatedly signing the invoice or making the certifications. The officer themselves may be personally liable for the false representation made, um, particularly if they had a material participation in the ultimate submission of the false claim. So those are just a few ways that the government can get a conspiracy claim or a, a relator can file a conspiracy claim. There are a few more, but those are your four main um, areas of potential liability. So each year, the Department of Justice issues statistics regarding how they're enforcing these different types of False Claims Act matters. And um, these can be helpful tools to forecast what issues DOJ is most interested in right now, um, types of trends in the False Claims Act, and 
how they are going to move forward in the next year. So in 2020, Department of Justice reported, interestingly, a record number of new False Claims Act matters, but a generally lower dollar recovery across the board for almost all industries. Um, and it's possible this is an impact of COVID-19, that there's delays in resolving cases. Um, what we do expect is that given the number of new matters open in 2020, 2021 is likely to be the largest annual dollar recovery that we've ever seen under the False Claims Act. Looking at some of the more specific types of claims that were filed, we noticed an increase in government-initiated matters, which has been consistent for the last year or two. Um, what this suggests to us is that the Department of Justice and the Office of the Inspector General are relying more on their internal investigations of False Claims Act matters than key TAM relators, uh, which is not to say that the key TAM relator reports have gone down. It's just that as they continue to rise, so does the government-initiated matters. Um, we also saw an ongoing trend, which is reflected again in the last couple of years, that the defense and healthcare industries continue to be the primary targets of False Claims Act investigations. Um, for the healthcare industry, that tends to arise from Medicare claims. Um, and last year, there was a lot of focus arising from the opioid crisis um, and prescription claims. Um, and lastly, we noticed that there is an ongoing focus on procurement fraud, particularly involving small business certifications. Um, and these are the types of programs that are intended to bolster small businesses. And DOJ is making it pretty clear that they're worried about this program being taken advantage of and that they're going to continue to focus False Claims Act efforts on making sure that it's not. In particular, um, Camille and I and some of our colleagues have been brought in to assist small businesses with inquiries by the federal government related to the Mentor-Protege program. This is a particular focus of the government. It is complicated by the fact that the regulations related to the Mentor-Protege program are not clear. Um, so the government is taking a very liberal stance and saying that a lot of behavior violates the False Claims Act when in reality um, it, it may not. Um, so that's just another um, factor to be considered. Um, ultimately, the False Claims Act has boundaries that are decided a, a little bit on the fly by the government or by a whistleblower. Um, that's how we got surety False Claims Act claims um, over the last few years. There's been a couple of cases um, that have set the tone. And now because those cases were ultimately successful, and when I say successful, I mean they survived a motion to dismiss, um, then it has given the government and other key TAM relators the confidence to bring those suits elsewhere. So although these are the areas that we've seen recent trends in enforcement, it does, certainly isn't a restriction. There's um, the reach of the False Claims Act is wide, and it just depends on the whims of the investigator or the, the attorney handling the case. So I'm going to jump back in very quickly to talk about special considerations for small businesses when they have set aside certifications. So I talked about this a little bit earlier. When are you making your certification? So for a single award prime contractor, you need to certify your size and status at the time you're submitting your proposal. If the you're submitting your status if it's an STVOSB, 8A, or other set-aside program. If it's just a small business contract, you're certifying your size at the time of the proposal. If you're bidding on a schedule contract, your certification is, um, the government considers your certification at the time of award of the schedule. This is why sometimes you may have run into a situation where someone has um, challenged your size because you won a task order under a schedule contract and you are no longer specifically small for that task order. The certification is at the time of the award of the schedule, not the task order. So um, there's not a False Claims Act violation if unless the government requests uh, uh, recertification as to size or status in their discretion if you were um, appropriately sized or had the appropriate status at the time of the award of the schedule. What is exactly a false certification as to size or status? It's ultimately um, a statement that you are eligible con for a contract, for, victor for winning a contract when you are not actually eligible. Um, some of the issues that can come up um, there are regulations that govern the 8A program, um, the woman-owned small business program. If you are not in compliance with those those 
um, requirements at the time certification is required, and then you or if you fall out of compliance, um, then there could be a False Claims Act violation. Usually this comes up in ownership and control issues. For instance, you might have a service disabled veteran owned small business where the service disabled veteran um, has given away certain voting rights to uh, another member that takes away their ownership and control in some respect that could create a False Claims Act violation. Um, or you could be talking about affiliation with a, with a large business or affiliation with another small business, but when you're combined, you're too large for a contract that you've won together. Um, we won't go into the nuances of affiliation in this webinar because they are um, very complicated and would take probably a whole webinar by themselves. Um, but those are issues you have to pay attention to when making your certifications as to size and status. So in addition to the certifications that you make at the outset of the contract, you need to be mindful of the performance of the contract throughout its duration. And most of these rules arise from the limitations on subcontracting rule. Um, this generally requires that the prime contractor under set-aside contract performs a certain percentage of the work with its own personnel. As of September of this year, this percentage is calculated based on the total amounts paid by the government with certain exceptions. And specifically, it requires that the cost of any contract awarded under a small business set aside, including contracts that are awarded to joint ventures or mentor-protege joint ventures, must be performed for a single award contract for services. 50% of the contract must be performed by the prime contractor. And there is one industry-specific exception for construction contracts in which the prime contractor needs to perform only 15% of the project. An exception to keep in mind or a special rule is that subcontracts that are awarded from the prime contractor to similarly situated entities will count towards that prime contractor's performance requirement. Um, an extra layer to keep in mind is that if you're performing a contract as a small business joint venture, there's an added layer to the calculation. You can kind of think of it as a small business within a small business, right? So the joint venture that has been awarded the contract must perform 40% of the work and within that, the small business must perform 40% of that work to satisfy the small business requirement. So these numbers, I'm sure, are leaving your head spinning a little bit. Um, and there are other limitations, even outside of these, that are beyond the scope of this webinar. Um, and we'll be sending some follow-up blog links that we've posted addressing these calculations. Because although they're difficult and they're tedious to calculate, they're absolutely crucial to understand and make sure that you are following throughout the performance of the contract because if you miscalculate or misrepresent your business's performance, you could be inviting a False Claims Act investigation. And I just want to make a, a couple of quick clarifications. So the joint venture itself on a um, contract where the joint venture is the prime contractor must perform 50% of the work. And the small business that is a part of the joint venture must perform 40% of the overall work performed by that joint venture. I just want to make sure that was clear on the record. A um, couple of other points. It's, it's unfortunately not enough just to understand the new rule that just came out. Um, that's hard enough. But because the False Claims Act has a really long shelf life, and we're going to talk about this in a few minutes because the statute of limitations is quite long, you also have to make sure that you are in compliance with the old rule um, where the limitations of subcontracting applied to the cost of labor for certain contracts you have to make sure that your contract was in compliance at the time that that rule applied. Um, so FCA matters can come up months or even years later. So you have to make sure that you're paying attention um, not only to your current performance, but also previous performance as well. I also want to make a point about the similarly situated rule. And, it's, and we get a lot of questions um, on a frequent basis about the similarly, similarly situated rule. And um, it's not just enough for a subcontractor to have the same socioeconomic status as the prime contractor. The subcontractor has to, has to have the same status as the contractor and the contract has to be a set aside for that socioeconomic status. So on an 8A set-aside contract, the prime contractor obviously needs to be an 8A. If they were to subcontract to another 8A firm, the both firms' performance of work together would count as prime contractor work. However, let's say that a, that a prime contractor was both an 8A uh, 
business development program participant, and an SDBOSB, a service-disabled veteran-owned small business, and wins an 8A set-aside contract, you would not be able to take the similarly situated rule credit if you subcontracted that work to an SDVOSB because the prime contract is an 8A set aside. So we've added another layer of complexity. Sometimes these rules can be pretty confusing. Ultimately, the most important thing is that you understand exactly how much work the prime contractor is doing to make sure that you're on board with the limitations of subcontracting throughout performance. So keeping in mind all these requirements, um, what are some of the best ways that you can protect yourself from FCA liability? Um, and the first step is to stay ahead of a violation by ensuring compliance with SBA requirements throughout the performance of the contract. Um, if you're a certified small business, you should have an employee designated specifically to ensure compliance as part of your standard operating procedures. Um, this employee should be responsible for ensuring that the business remains small based on size, that your organizing documents accurately designate your company's owners and managers, um, and especially if there are any changes that happen during the year or contract performance, that those changes are accurately reflected in everything that you're reporting. Um, you should be regularly conducting internal audits to ensure that you're accurately reporting your size, revenues, and performance, um, and also just keeping an eye on contract performance and those figures that we talked about. If you're performing as a mentor-protege or in a joint venture situation, you need to understand that you ensure that you understand what your contracts say, what it requires of you, um, what types of reports you should be making to the government, and the information that you need to be including in that report. You should be maintaining and creating internal checklists um, that might be contract-specific. Very rarely do you think one size fits all, even if you are consistently doing the same types of contracts. Um, and I think most importantly is you need to seek advice if you have questions. A lot of times you see these false claims act cases where a contractor just buried its head and did not take any steps to investigate or find the answer, even when they expressed that they were confused. Um, and this can be enough to meet that reckless requirement under the False Claims Act. So as soon as you have a question, reach out and see if you can find an answer. Um, and lastly, attend regular trainings to make sure that employees and managers understand the small business regulations and trends in enforcing them. Webinars like this can be really helpful. There's a lot of great organizations that put out regular trainings so that you can be sure you're staying ahead of the regulations and requirements for performing these contracts. And um, so what are some measures that you can take? You know, you've done everything that you can to prevent a False Claims Act violation. And even though you've done your best, you hear from an employee that one might have occurred. Um, the first and most important thing that you need to do is take that complaint seriously. We've talked about the role that a key TAM relator can have, and that same employee that's making the report to you could eventually become a key TAM plaintiff. Um, so just even if it's an employee that's recently been terminated or is otherwise a difficult employee, um, just understand the, the risks that even a allegation could have for your company. Um, so the, the next steps are to investigate that complaint and document your investigation. Determine whether you do have any compliance problems, um, if there's anything that's headed towards a violation, and start to think about how you can prevent that from becoming an actual violation. It's important to keep in mind that government contractors do have certain obligations as well as incentives to report any violations that they discover internally. The first one is an obligation called the Mandatory Disclosure Rule, and that is a federal regulation that mandates that government contractors disclose to the Office of Inspector General all situations for which they have credible evidence of a potential violation of the False Claims Act. Um, in addition to a civil lawsuit, failure to disclose certain violations can result in suspension or debarment from doing business with the federal government under this rule. So this is kind of a separate enforcement mechanism to ensure that you're keeping track of any potential false claims and making sure that you're reporting them and addressing them appropriately. The second aspect is more of an incentive rather than an obligation, which is that the Department of Justice has advised that companies that disclose and attempt to resolve any false claims act violations before they have occurred may incur less severe penalties and fines under any eventual false claims act claim through these cooperation credits. Um, the things that DOJ is going to keep in mind is 
whether this disclosure was truly timely and truly voluntary. Um, they're going to take consider how you cooperated, whether that was by making certain documents available to them, making certain employees available, um, and facilitating any review of data that they need access to. Um, they're going to look at any remedial measures that you put into place. How did you analyze the misconduct? Did you make any employee changes or internal policy changes in response to the violation when you found it? The Department of Justice has significant discretion to give or not give this credit, but it is an incentive for you to stay ahead of these violations and make sure that you're addressing them appropriately and reporting them when you do find them. Um, so the next step from discovering that you have a False Claims Act violation is being faced with a subpoena, a civil investigative demand, or a search warrant regarding a potential False Claims Act violation. There's various methods of notice, um, but generally the first step is going to be that the government will be interested in reviewing certain documents that you have, and those are generally going to be requested through a subpoena or a civil investigative demand. First step always is do not panic, um, but also contact an attorney before you start responding to those notices, before you start answering phone calls from the government. Um, Matt, I'm sure, has some stories of where clients get to us after they've already handed certain things over and they're a little deep in water. Um, so it's important to have an attorney and an advisor who can walk you through this process so you know what to expect, you know what to disclose and how the appropriate ways to do that. Internally, when you are faced with a subpoena or a civil investigative demand, it's absolutely imperative that you stop all routine document and email destruction, and you want to make sure that any records that you have are properly preserved. You want to try to get ahead of the investigation that the government is conducting by putting together an internal investigation yourself, um, and you're going to want to rely on counsel to help you do this. In these situations, an attorney is going to come in and probably talk to some of your employees, identify people who might be knowledgeable witnesses, get a more objective idea of what was happening and what piqued the government's interest about these violations. Um, in line with stopping your routine document and email destruction, you're going to want to verify and maintain your paper trail and start to look through those documents that are relevant to any alleged violation. Um, and this gets to the last point. I think I've already said it multiple times that documents are going to be absolutely critical in terms of what you're maintained throughout the performance, but also while you're conducting these investigations. So a little bit about uh, FCA penalties, because the False Claims Act is, as Camilla mentioned earlier, the primary vehicle for the government to recover damages. Um, and the damages can be very severe. Um, there is a mandatory damages component to the False Claims Act, these penalties range from $11,665 to $23,331 per violation. That could mean if you, using my example from before, if, uh, if you charge a 5% fee on your um, contract instead of 4%, every single invoice you submitted over the life of the contract could theoretically be a False Claims Act violation. If you're submitting one a month for five years, that's 60 violations. Um, imagine 60 violations at $23,000 a pop. We're talking about significant damages. On top of that, um, the False Claims, Claims Act can result in treble damages of the actual damages resulting from the, uh, the alleged, alleged fraud. Um, this is determined in reference to the type of claim pursued um, and the type of claim that is ultimately successful on behalf of the government. So if you have, let's say, you submit an invoice that includes a one-off unallowable cost of $150,000, for whatever reason that may be, um, then your damages could be $150,000 times three. Um, that would be $450,000 plus the violation penalty of approximately $23,000. So you could a, a one-time mistake of $150,000 could result in liability of $475,000 or so. Another example would be the award of a, let's say, HUBZone set-aside contract worth $7 million in revenue to a company that is not in compliance with the HUBZone requirements 
that could result in three times the entire value of the contract because the contract itself was allegedly procured by fraud, plus a, perhaps a penalty violation for every invoice submitted over the life of that contract. So very significant um, penalties involved. And as Camilla mentioned earlier, one of the incentives for filing these types of actions that whistleblowers have is they get a share of the recovery. Anywhere from 15 to 30% of the overall recovery can go to the whistleblower. So imagine um, one disgruntled employee claiming that a company was um, not HUBZone compliant at the time that they were awarded a contract or time that they've been on a contract. And the potential damages are in the neighborhood of 21 or $22 million. That could be a $7 million payday for a whistleblower. That's a huge incentive for a whistleblower to come forward, um, even with information that's not entirely accurate. Um, the saving grace with FCA penalties is something we mentioned earlier. There has to be a knowledge or recklessness component. So inadvertent mistakes where you overbill by $150,000 um, aren't going to necessarily result in False Claims Act liability unless you know or have reason to know um, that there was a violation or an improper billing. When we talk about recklessness, we're typically talking about someone who put their head in the sand and didn't pay attention to um, a pretty obvious uh, case of fraud. Um, so although the penalties are significant, there are defenses um, and the typical everyday mistake that people make in submitting invoices periodically on any significant government contract aren't going to lead to significant liability. But when they're accompanied by fraudulent intent, they can. Looking at the statute of limitations, which is essentially the deadline that needs to be met before a case expires, so to say, um, False Claims Act do have a long shelf life. Um, there's two categories. Generally speaking, it's going to be six years after the date on which the violation is committed or three years after the date when the official responsible to know of the violation discovered it. Um, and that three-year exception basically extends the time it could be six plus three, except in any instance, it will not be more than 10 years after the violation occurred. Um, and you can imagine if you're performing a contract over a span of years, um, you could have a very long period where you should be looking back and ensuring that there were no violations that occurred. All right. That basically wraps up everything we were going to share. If you have any independent questions that you'd like to ask me or Camilla, please reach out. We appreciate your time and we look forward to seeing you on a future podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Maza production. And music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.